0: Okay, you know, like uh, welcome everybody. You know, like as uh, Program Director, I would like to welcome you all to this public lecture of uh, the Summer School, where tonight, you know, like uh, Steve uh, Matchin will talk about new developments in the economics of crime. Steve Matchin has been at uh, the London School of Economics and the Center of Economic Performance for many years and has spent time at UCL, Harvard, the MBR, and uh, MIT. He's been a director of the Center of Economics of Education and is a research director of the Center of Economic Performance. He's taught in labor economics, supply economics, and econometrics. Stephen has published extensively on topics ranging from labor market inequality and wage structures, minimum wages, economics of education, trade unions, corporate performance, and the economics of crime. In recognition of his research, he's been made fellow of the British Academy and fellow of the Society of Labor Economists. Tonight, as I said, Stephen will discuss the latest developments in the economics of crime. Quoting a headline from the, econom- from the Economist from March this year, kids in England and Wales these days are more law-abiding than previous generations. How can we explain this, and what importance do economic incentives make? These are questions that Stephen will address in this lecture. Following this lecture, I will open the floor to questions, and you are then welcome to join us uh, in a reception uh, in the senior dining room, which is on the fifth floor of this building, you know, like, so please you know, like, uh, Steve, you know,
1: like. okay, thanks very much for the uh, very nice introduction uh, and i 'm very pleased to be able to give you op- have the opportunity to come and give this talk uh, today about as, as the title is the new development New development in the economics of crime uh, which uh, is one of one of the research areas that i 've been fairly active in, especially more recently uh, and i 'll talk about some of my work um, as we as we go through, uh, but also talk about broader questions about the about the economics of crime okay so let me just get this presentation right okay um, so, so as I say, I'm going to talk about new developments in the economics of crime. Uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer, because the economics of crime has been a field uh, within economics for quite a long time, uh, and I will refer to some of that older work um, as, as, as we kind of go through some of the kind of defining work uh, on the economics of crime. But what I also want to talk about is um, in some of the more recent empirical developments uh, that have been undertaken where people actually try and test some of the key predictions about what uh, an economist's view of what what might determine crime would actually be. Um, so, as I said a moment ago, so economics of crime has become a thriving research area, and as with many other areas of applied economics, um, the economic approach uh, that we might normally think of uh, kind of combines aspects of supply and demand uh, together with thinking a bit a bit about what cost benefit uh, calculations might might might. might might be undertaken both from an individual's perspective about somebody who might be deciding whether to participate in crime or not and also for calculating what the costs of crime might be to society um, so the economic approach which i will go through uh, before i talk about empirical evidence um, can be used to re- derive pretty firm testable implications um, for a number of issues about who might participate in crime um, so one, one aspect of this might be that what, we might be interested in why certain types of individuals are more or less likely to engage in criminal activity. Um, so some of those individual characteristics might be things like um, whether people are more or less educated, uh, whether younger or older people are more likely to participate in crime, whether men or women are more likely to participate in crime, uh, and sometimes more controversial areas like whether migrants are more likely to participate in crime or not. Um, so the, the approach I'm going to outline, we'll talk about how we might think about building in uh, the idea that individuals who have certain different characteristics may be more or less likely to engage in crime. Um, I'll also talk about crime and the labour market in a particular focus about how economic incentives might matter for crime. So if a labour market's doing better, uh, you might think that perhaps people may be less inclined to participate in crime if they can get a certain job, which gives you a kind of... Uh, as as a, a, you know, a certain wage rather than uncertainty associated with um, criminal activity. And then the other area that um, the modelling tends, tends to emphasise is the is aspects of the criminal justice system. So how tough the criminal justice system might be in terms of of, of, of uh, penalising criminals, and so whether you can see find deterrence effects, for example, from harsher sentencing, uh, or whether putting more police on the streets may matter for uh, determining crime. Um, so I, I think it's worth stressing that this is actually a, a very important area for economists. Sometimes say, what are economists doing looking at crime? And I, I would argue, actually, I think it's actually part of mainstream economics to be thinking about criminal, um, c- criminality as an outcome that individuals may, may participate in. Um, and of course, you know, not least, because the economic and social costs of crime are demonstrably high. All the calculations we have on the economic costs of crime are pretty sizable. Um, So crime actually imposes significant costs on society. Okay, so that's the kind of background. What I actually want to talk about uh, in this lecture is this. Uh, So I'm going to try and talk about about presenting evidence on the determinants of criminality uh, and place a particular focus on whether changing economic incentives matter for for participation in crime. Uh, So kind of underpinning this, uh, in, in, in the recent literature I want to focus upon. There's been very significant empirical developments in the economics of crime field. Uh, the use of large-scale microdata, big data, has become a, 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 a big thing in this area. And trying to implement credible research designs uh, where we can establish causality from some of those you know, possible determinants of crime that I highlighted before, like education or like uh, the number of police, and to ensure that the causality runs from those towards crime and not in the opposite direction. Okay. And that's actually quite, an, that's quite a difficult empirical challenge. I, I'll, I'll illustrate that to start with uh, when, when I come to the empirical area in terms of the uh, the relationship between crime and police. And so it's a very good example, but actually uh, the problem there disentangling the relationship between crime and police is actually more police get put in high crime places uh, and uh, with the intention to try and try and fight crime. But of course, that means that the causation could run in both directions. Uh, and what we want to think about as economists, thinking about what the impact of police on crime might be, is to ensure the causality runs from police to crime and not the other way around. Okay, so that's a, that's a big empirical challenge. And some of these methods that have come about and um, these more recent research designs do plausibly. Uh, and I hope plausibly when I, when, I, when I show you the results from, from this, uh, uh, establish causal effects, uh, for example, of police on crime or education on crime uh, or other determinants of crime. Um, and so the areas of evidence that I'm going to consider, I'm going to consider four areas of evidence, all of which come uh, drop, n- drop quite nicely out of the um, e- economic framework for analysing um, uh, whether people participate in crime or not. Um, And so I'll begin with the the one I just mentioned a moment ago, the relationship between crime and police. I'll also talk about um, crime in the labour market. Uh, I'll talk about crime and education, and I'll talk about um, the economic returns to crime. Uh, So we might be interested in whether, you know, if if the potential returns differ, whether that alters people on the margins about whether they're going to participate in crime or not. Okay, so that's what I'm going to do. Okay, so just in a very, very general sense, uh, you know, there's a wide range of possible crime determinants. There's a wide range of reasons why you might think uh, individuals might participate in crime. And so I've just listed some of them here. Uh, It's probably a non-exhaustive list, but you can kind of think about, you know, uh, living standards, uh, and by that we might mean uh, earnings that people might get in the labour market, or we might mean family incomes. We might mean the inequality of those uh, earnings and income outcomes, you know, if you feel like you're doing very badly because there's other people who are doing very well in society perhaps that might shift your uh, marginal decision Uh, there's various individual choices you might think there's a thrill uh, associated with participating in crime Uh, some people might argue that's that's one of the reasons why people do it Um, you know, there's a background environment by which you might think think of a structure of society or perhaps social norms or perhaps peer pressures Uh, maybe internal environments like family norms what goes on in the family uh, one, one thing I won't talk about today but is true is actually uh, crime does tend to run in families. There's a strong intergenerational link between uh, criminality of children and their parents. Um, you might think about luck or opportunism. Uh, somebody who might not necessarily participate in crime might see an opportunity and perhaps they uh, take that opportunity. Uh, If somebody somebody sees Marcia's iPad hanging around while she's uh, having a drink upstairs, you know, you never know. Somebody might weigh up the expected costs and benefits of of, of the iPad. Uh, Well, of course, there's various things like find my iPhone on there, which (laughs) might actually stop that these days. So you may have a technological response to that. Um, And then there's issues about policing, justice, sentencing, uh, which we may well think about deterrence effects of crime. So a tougher sentencing might be the more visible police on the streets might be, if you're thinking about participating in crime on the streets, perhaps they may have a deterrent effect on on, 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 on people's, um, people's decision-making. Okay. Now, we can be a bit more formal about that. That's just throwing out some ideas, basically. but We can be a bit more formal about that. Uh, and we can kind of formalise some of these motives in simple economic models. Uh, we can get more complicated than I'm going to, uh, and I will talk a little bit about how the sort of basic model I'm going to present here can be extended... Uh, in various different directions, Uh, but I'm just going to outline what what is the sort of orthodox um, model of crime that economists have have looked at. And so the idea would be uh, that people will weigh up the expected benefits and the expected costs of participating in illegal activities as compared to legal activities, and then make their decision uh, based on weighing up those, um, those expected benefits and expected costs. So if we thought about the labour market choice, well, in the labour market context, you could choose to do crime or work. It could be a binary decision and you do one or the other uh, in terms of your expected utility. It's pretty easy to make that a time allocation thing, and so you could allocate your time between crime and work. Uh, many crimes don't take very long to do, so you could probably hold down a job while you're doing crime if you want to, and indeed many people do. Um, and so we might think about weighing it up in that kind of, in that kind of way. Now, this is going to be a decision under uncertainty because there's also a non-zero probability that you get caught if you decide to participate in the illegal activities. Uh, And so this is going to have to be thought of as an expected benefit cost calculation, so it's expected, and so you need to weigh in the um, probability of being caught into that decision-making. So as an example of this, uh, the person who kind of formalised this mathematically first was Gary Becker, uh, and in his Nobel Prize lecture... Uh, He spoke about his work on the economics of crime. And so there was this quote here from his Nobel Prize lecture, uh, which kind of summarises the way in which the economics of crime model tends to work. So I began to think about crime in the 1960s after driving to Columbia University for an oral examination of a student in economic theory. I was late and had to decide quickly whether to put the car in a parking lot or risk getting a ticket for parking illegally on the street. I calculated the likelihood of getting a ticket, the size of a penalty and the cost of putting the car in a lot. I decided it paid to take the risk and park on the street. I and mean, then in brackets, I did not get a ticket. Um, so this kind of summarises the economic way, uh, the economic, the basic economic model of think, thinking about crime. So we can formalise this, but you can see there's an expected cost-benefit calculation under, being undertaken there. And factoring into that is the probability of being caught and um, the size of a sanction, the size of a penalty, it's written there, the size of a penalty if you get caught. Okay. Um, so obviously we can write this down in a more formal way. Um, and so this is sort of a rational model of crime, and many and other social science disciplines like to criticise this model by saying that people don't behave in a rational way. Uh, I think you can levy a, a response to that, actually, because you don't actually need to be behaving in a rational way. You have to be behaving as if the underpinning model um, would apply. Um, and actually, you can trace this kind of way of thinking about criminality right a long way back. You can trace it back to Jeremy Bentham, um, back in the 18th century. He didn't write down a formal mathematical model like Becker did, uh, but the logic of many, uh, many of Bentham's stuff, Bentham was a bit, was very radical in terms of organising prisons and thinking about how you organise prisons in a way to deter criminals from uh, participating in crime as well. Uh, you can trace it back in history to, to, to Bentham and many of us who've written on things. Hume uh, wrote stuff about, um, about the legal aspects of, of criminality as well. Okay, so just to be a little bit more formal, you might think the expected utility from doing crime is given by this, uh, this equation here, EU. And so that's going to be a weighted combination of the utility you get from the criminal act, uh, which we might denote as C, and, uh, and, and relative to the, put, the sanction you have to pay if you get caught. So you can see here that we've got the probability of being caught P. So if you get caught, you have to pay this monetary sanction S, which gives you a disutility a hence a minus sign in there. Um, and as, and uh, if you don't get caught, 1 minus P, you get back utility from the criminal earnings, WC. So WC is the monetary gain from committing an offence. S is the sanction, and P is the probability of being caught. So you might think, OK, maybe people will commit a crime if that, is posit- if that, if that, uh, if that expression there is positive. Uh, it's more reasonable, though, to think about an alternative and to set up some kind of notion of opportunity cost and the obvious opportunity cost you might think of is the obvious alternative you might think of is getting a job which has a certain wage. Okay? So the way in which we normally uh, pitch the economic uh, decision-making process here would be to think we've got an expected utility from participating in crime and you might want to weigh that up against the utility you get from uh, a certain wage in the labour market. It might be the minimum wage, for example. And so you know exactly how much you're going to get if, if, if you get a minimum wage job. And so the idea here would be: you'd think that you'd participate in crime if the expected utility from participating in a crime uh, outweighs the utility you get from uh, from work in this in this setting. Okay. Um, so this model is quite useful in the sense that it's rather simple, uh, but it also generates some very clear predictions um, about 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 criminal behaviour. So one thing that's very clear straight away is that crime needs to pay more than working. Okay, so if p was equal to naught, you would need that u of WC is greater than u of W. Okay, so you obviously need that WC, the returns from participating in crime, are higher than what you can get with certainty, um, on the labour market. Okay, what's also true is that as p rises from zero, from, from the probability of not being caught, from, from a zero probability of being caught, to a non-zero probability of caught being caught, but actually the gap between WC and W is going to have to get bigger. Okay, so the criminal earnings that you're going to get, the return is going to have to be bigger, the higher is the probability that you're going to get caught. caught. Okay, so we can think about that in the real world, and we can think about that kind of setting. Uh, But if we think about things that put P up, uh, and I'll come to that in a moment, uh, the probability of being caught up, then we might think about how that shapes up between criminal uh, returns and uh, legal wages um, in the labour market. Okay, and so some of the work about crime and the labour market is very much about that. What happens if the uh, relativity between the criminal earnings and the legal earnings changes? Does that does that shift people on the margins of crime who weren't participating in crime to actually participate in crime? Okay, so that's the kind of logic about some of the crime and labour market work that's been undertaken. Um, the other thing that's true is the major factors that determine crime participation are actually related to one another. So the key variables um, in that that model I've written down are the relativity, which I just mentioned a moment ago, between criminal and legitimate earnings. So how big WC is relative to W. Um, So, you know, we we might think... If we were thinking of W, the legal wage, as the minimum wage, if the minimum wage goes up, you might think that could shift the relativities between, between W and WC. So labour market policy might be something actually that could actually have, a, have an impact on crime, whereas it's not designed to have an impact on crime. But you might actually think one unintended consequence of labour market policy might, but it can have an impact on crime. Uh, and so that's one kind of obvious link between the real-world uh, uh, policy uh, debates and criminal activity you might think about here. And so I guess we might think about criminal and legitimate earnings as reflecting economic incentives. Economic incentives to do uh, illegal stuff and economic incentives to do legal stuff. Okay. And we might think if a relativity shift, that may influence criminal uh, participation. Then we also might think about the more of a criminal justice side of things, the magnitude of a probability of being caught, P, and the extent of punishment, uh, which we've pitched here as the size of a sanction. Uh, we can convert it into monetary equivalents. The size of a sanction it might be if you go to court. If you get caught and you go to court, you might um, pay a fine, for a certain amount, and so if a fine is, is, is higher, you might think that could have a deterrence effect uh, on, on people's participation. Okay. So, of course, what this is going to do is generate a crime participation equation where crime is going to depend on all four of those factors. What we might think about this in, 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 in the usual way of thinking about economics, we might think of this as a supply curve for crime. So people might cr- supply their uh, hours... hours uh, uh, rather than, than supply their hours as hours of work they might supply their hours as hours of crime and that could be determined by um, these factors how big or small the criminal returns are what the wage on offer in the labour market is the probability of being caught um, and the sanctions and so one of the nice things about this is this, deter- this just gives you very clear predictions uh, about how these four factors uh, should impinge on uh, on. On measures of criminality if you actually can, can observe these in, in data in the real world. So obviously if it returns to crime, so Ceteris Paribus, from these partial derivatives down here, if WC goes up, holding all the other factors constant, you're more likely to participate in crime. So if the criminal earnings go up, uh, you're more likely to participate in crime. Uh, so, you know, if a loot available out there is you know more visible or something, or you know where you can Get some loot from doing crime, then presumably your criminal probability will go up. Uh, if the wage goes up, it should be reduced because that should shift you towards work and away from crime. If the probability of being caught goes up, that should should reduce crime. And if the size of a sanction goes up, that should also have a deterrent effect and reduce crime. So we get these very clear comparative statics that come out of this this way of thinking about thinking about criminality or crime decisions. Um, So we can also generalise this a little bit further. Uh, So the model reveals how crime participation depends on um, those factors I've put there, but we can also bring other factors into play that we might be interested in. So for example, we could build in individual characteristics. So we could say that one thing we do know from uh, evidence in labour economics is that people who are more educated, people who've got higher levels of education, earn more. Survey so in the labour market. Survey so there wages are higher. So we could obviously introduce a wage. We could we could introduce a wage function here, where we say wages are a function of education. And then if we substitute that into the crime participation equation, we can get we can get predictions about education impacting on crime. Uh, we can also do the same kind of thing if we want to incorporate them through uh, income effects, for age, gender, uh, immigrant status, for example. Uh, so, you know, obviously, depending on whether those wages depend positively or negatively on those factors, people might be more likely to participate in crime or less likely to participate in crime. We can do the same kind of exercise as well with the, um, with the criminal justice variables. So we could say that, you know, we might think that the probability of being caught is higher if there's more police on the streets. So if we represent the number of police by, the, by phi, the Greek letter, there, and p is a function of phi, we could say that we could actually get a firm prediction actually that more police should reduce crime from this model. Similarly, on the size of a sanction, uh, you might think that uh, one one measure of a sanction will be how much if you get caught and you get a and 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 um, a judge sentences you in court, then uh, you might think that if a sentence length for a given crime, if 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 a, if a mandatory sentence length for a particular crime is higher. Uh, then you might participate in. You, then, then, you might think that, that could have a deterrent effect on participating in crime. Uh, so, one good example of that, which I won't talk about today, although I have a paper published on it, is that the, the London riots that took place um, in August two thousand and eleven. Uh, one thing that happened in that was judges sentenced people to much longer sentences for doing exactly the same crimes uh, as people who hadn't participated in those riots before. And so you might think that uh, that's one area where you might want to look for deterrence effects subsequently. So we have a paper in the Economic Journal where we do find deterrence effects from the tougher uh, sentences for people who participated in the London riots. Um, okay. Maybe I should have included that in the talk, but I didn't. Okay, so if you just want to summarise the model, this is the kind of thing you have here. And you can kind of, I, I've, I've put this up here, Just it's exactly the same model Uh, where you have the expected utility from participating in crime on the left hand side of the inequality and the the certainty equivalent uh, utility from the wage on the right hand side and so we can kind of think that you have these three things the economic returns to crime the way in which deterrence in the criminal justice system might operate and then the legal alternatives to crime and so we can put a bunch of factors that we might think about as possible determinants of crime under each of of these kind of headings uh, and so I will talk about the empirical evidence on some of these, uh, although not all of these. But there's a lot of work out there that also looks at other things. So on the economic returns to crime, for example, criminal earnings is one thing. How big or small of a potential criminal earnings? And I will talk about that today in, in, in the context of a value of a loop that you might get. Uh, what I won't talk about today is security responses. So, of course, one thing you might do to re- reduce the returns to crime uh, is, 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 is install some kind of security. Uh, so there's some research out there that looks at what happened when, um, to vehicle crime after, after the European, legisla- European Union legislation imposed that you have to put engine immobilisers in new cars. And, and so you had to put engine immobilisers in new cars and not in old cars. And so you could see what happened to vehicle crime before and after that legislation came in. And vehicle crime dropped massively um, uh, in, in, in that work after, after uh, having an engine immobiliser Uh, became a compulsory thing in in, in new cars. Uh, uh, Having said that, uh, there was an article in The Economist about a year ago talking about what criminals did to respond to that. And actually, you can now get little credit card-sized things that if you put them on the side of a car, it demobilises the engine immobiliser. And so you can see how technology can actually evolve and you might get these kind of crime cycles going up and down. Okay, um, criminal careers, I'll come back to that in a the moment. Then we might think about policing, enforcement, size of sanctions, sentencing in court, and so on. And then the other stuff which deters, which means people are less likely to participate in crime perhaps, would be if the labour market is better, if, if people acquire more education, uh, and perhaps if they're in job careers that have more certainty and perhaps more career progression associated with them. So some of the empirical work that I'm going to turn to in a moment actually tries to address these questions and actually tries to link with big data, in many cases, uh, the relationship between crime and a bunch of these things written down at the bottom here. Okay. Before I just get to that, I think it's probably worth making a couple of observations uh, about, about the, this way of thinking about crime. Uh, so one additional observation with two A's somehow... An additional observation, you might think, is about... So, some, so, so quite a lot of people think the economic model of crime may well be of relevance for property crimes. So if you're going to go and steal something, uh, if you're going to burgle a house, uh, if you're going to participate in those sorts... Snatch a bag on Oxford Street, if you're going to do those sorts of crimes, steal Marcia's iPad upstairs. Um, if you're going to engage in property crimes, you, you might think that's more, more relevance and perhaps of less relevance to violent crimes. Uh, So, you know, some people say violent crimes are much more, maybe more irrational and often crimes of passion and so on. And thinking about that in this kind of rational way might not be so sensible. Um, So some of the work does try to distinguish between uh, violent crime and property crime to see whether that actually comes out of a way of thinking about things as well. Um, One thing that is true is, of course, they do display much more variance than property crimes. They're much less frequent. Um, in, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, when you observe them in data, about two thirds of crimes are property crimes uh, in Britain, for example. Okay, you can also extend the model if you if you if you don't like certain aspects about it in, in terms of reality. But this model can be extended in several ways, and there's quite a lot of theoretical work that people have done, and are, c- are still doing to try and think about think about things. So, one obvious thing you might think about uh, is not not just having this kind of discrete choice between crime and work you might think about having a time allocation model uh, where at different times, or maybe different ages of people, uh, uh, for for example, different points in their life cycle, uh, people might uh, think about weighing up what the marginal returns are to participating in crime relative to f- the formal labour markets um, and, 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 and choose the one with the highest marginal return at that time. So one thing that's very clear in data is that crime age profiles take this inverse U-shape and they kind of peak at about age 19 or 20 for most crimes. Not all crimes, but for most crimes, they, they peak at about age 19 or 20. So, of course, that general time allocation model, you might think that actually returns to crime might be higher for younger people. Remember, crime is typically the domain of young men. Not only, but it's typically the domain of young men. And so maybe people might think about making these kind of decisions at different times in their lives. Another feature of the model I've just presented a moment ago is its very much pitched as a, an individual making a decision whether or not to participate in crime and thinking about what the expected benefits and costs uh, of doing that might be. So, of course, much crime, well, quite a lot of crime, is not necessarily undertaken by individuals, but by networks of individuals. Um, you know, there's lots of organised crime. Think about organised crime in Italy with a mafia. That's very much an, a network of people participating in crime and not just individuals uh, and so networks, so networks have become very trendy. Uh, social network models, and modelling has become very trendy in economics more recently. And so some people have pitched crime into in, in that to think more about kind of mafia-type, organised crime-type type, um, issues or perhaps gangs, people, people selecting into gangs to do crime uh, and thinking about what the opportunities might be from that as well. And then a third thing where you might extend it, which is sort of related a little bit to what I said about number one here, is you might think about crime dynamics... And you might think about uh, people uh, uh, who may become prolific offenders. Uh, you know, many people, uh, many people uh, have, you know... There's a lot of, uh, I'm not saying so very clear. A lot of crime is, done by, is typically done by a small number of people. So there's, there's, there's prolific offenders who do crime, who, who, who actually um, do a lot of the crime, if you look at the share of crime done by certain individuals. So there's a bunch of people who just have one drunken disorderly or something, and that's their entire criminal record. You're not really going to think about those sorts of people Uh, who are going to be thinking about um, becoming a career criminal. On the other hand, the prolific offenders who are perhaps investing in criminal capital rather than human capital and foregoing education, you might think that actually that may may make them prolific offenders and career criminals as well. So the idea about dynamics and perhaps people choosing one path over another path and perhaps investing in building up your stock of criminal capital as compared to your stock of human capital... Uh, might well be something that you could think about in terms of crime dynamics. And of course would have implications for what the impact of education, building up human capital, would be for criminal for criminal behaviour. Okay. So what the empirical implications that come out of this way of thinking about the economics of crime are um, at least these, and these are pitched for the four areas that I want to talk about empirical evidence on. So first thing is the model says that criminal justice variables should matter for... Uh, for criminality. Uh, so police strength, uh, the visibility of police, the number of police on the streets should be a predictor of crime. So should how tough or lenient sentencing is uh, and so should other deterrent strategies that, that might, might be out there um, as well, uh, including uh, big things like capital punishment like the death penalty in the US. About whether, there's a huge debate about whether that actually has a deterrent effect um, or not uh, when some states have a death penalty and some states don't. Um, so, criminal justice, the model says criminal justice ma- variables should matter for, 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 for crime. And they also, it also suggests that labour market opportunities can matter for individuals who are on the margins of crime. So, if you're more able to get a job with a higher wage, perhaps that could tilt you on the margins about, uh, about whether you partake in crime or, 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 or if, if you like, licit or illicit activities. Uh, it's also true of individual characteristics. The model also says individual characteristics can be associated with crime and including some individual characteristics that, that, that can be influenced by policy. Uh, so we know education policy uh, has, has been changed at various times in various settings. We know we can have immigration policy. If people thought that immigrants caused crime, then presumably immigration policy can be thought of as being designed to, 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 to reflect that as well. And so there's a lot of stuff in the newspapers, of course, about that. Uh, it's kind of topical post-Brexit and so on um, as well. And then changes in economic returns to crime should predict cr- criminality. If there's more available stuff t- for pe- people to be able to get, uh, then presumably that should influence you on the margins. So what I want to do is, um, is talk about these four... Uh, about recent empirical evidence on these four areas. So I'm going to talk about the first one, I'm going to talk about police, the relationship between crime and police. Uh, It's very useful for illustrating the difficulty in untangling the causal relationship, I think, to start with. I'll talk about crime in the labour market, what the evidence says on that. I'll talk about crime and education as the area uh, under three and I'll talk about changes in economics return, economic returns to crime. So I'll talk about two things there, one about measuring what the economic returns might be, and one figuring out about if those economic returns change, whether that tilts people into criminality or away from criminality, depending on which direction they're moving. OK, so the first one, let's begin with the first one. So in the Becker model, as I said before, increasing the number of police should increase P uh, and should re- have a negative impact on crime. Uh, more police on the streets uh, should reduce crime. Uh, Now, there's a big problem with this. So, obviously, when I wrote this equation down here, we're presuming that the causality flows from those things on the right-hand side of the equation, WC, WP, and S, to C. So, you know, if you change those things on the right-hand side, then you should um, have a prediction about the impact on crime. A problem occurs if, actually, crime uh, is a determinant of those things. And so the classic example in crime and police... It's actually, that's exactly true, what happens in the real world. Um, in the real world, uh, police get deployed where crime is higher. Okay? So the causality goes completely the other way around from what the Becker model um, would suggest. So this is a very clear example in, in econometric speak of where we have simultaneity bias. Uh, the relationship runs both ways, so you have a simultaneous equations for crime-determining police and police-determining crime. Uh, and so, you know, we might want to think about how we can conf- try... Contri- perhaps try to unpack this. So actually what turns out, if you actually go and get some data on crime and you get some data on police and you run a regression of one on the other, this is what happens. So this is, a, this is, a, this is um, data on uh, the y-axis is the crime rate uh, and the x-axis is, is the number of full-time police per 100,000 population. Uh, and the dots are the 43 police force areas of England and Wales. Uh, the size of a dot is bigger if the population... Um, is bigger so actually if you run that regression of crime on police you get the regression line fit between those points is the upward sloping relationship there uh, uh, which shows a positive relationship between crime and police Uh, the dot out on the right hand side the biggest circle is London Uh, London has the highest crime rate it also has the highest number of police who are deployed Okay. so obviously the causation is running both ways here now there's a big literature out there. Uh, in, 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 there, was, there was a big literature that actually said that there was no impact of police on crime because of this, these kinds of cross-sectional correlations. Okay, uh, which is a little bit worrying, I think, because obviously you can think that the causation could be running in both in both ways. So what the more recent developments? in the economics of crime I've tried to do is they've tried to untangle that relationship to ensure the causality flows from police to crime. OK, so I'm going to talk about two studies that have done that uh, relative, relatively recently. And you can make up your own mind about whether you think they're convincing or not uh, as, you, as you kind of go through that. Obviously, what you want to think about is some, something that determines police but doesn't have a direct impact on crime. And the only way that it operates is working through pli- in different police numbers. OK. So I'm going to talk about two areas of evidence on on, on this question. Uh, So the first is this this paper by Steve Levitt, uh, who is this well-known US paper. Uh, It's very well-known. It was published in the American Economic Review in 1997. It's very well-known because it's probably the first paper that actually does plausibly, in a credible kind of research design, uh, unpack the relationship and about how it goes one way or the other. Previous studies had just tended to collect data on crime and police and just run that kind of statistical regression. I showed you, and men can actually conclude uh, that putting more police on the streets is not a good idea because uh, there is no relationship, there is no negative relationship between crime and police. Okay. So what he notes in his paper, uh, he, he, he compiles data on US cities over time. I think it's 59 US cities um, over time. Uh, and notes something that actually in election years, uh, US cities spend more money on crime prevention. Okay. And so therefore he predicts that increases in police numbers occur in election years and shows empirical evidence on that uh, to try and establish that the direction of causation is going to go from police to crime. So of course the key question is, so in, 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 in these 50, he follows these 59 cities over time and in the time, he go, the time he observes them, some years are election years and some aren't. Okay. So of course the question that emerges is what happens to crime in those election years when more money is spent on police? And that's the critical kind of question about trying to unpack what the relationship would be. Um, so as I said here, so he looks at 59 large US cities between 1970 and 1992 who have directly elected mayors. So you're going to get a mayor election. Okay? So in, that ki- in terms of that kind of regression I showed you before, where we might think about crime on the y-axis, police on the x-axis, if you just run a regression over a whole time period, in that same way as I did before, uh, you get this positive association just like the one I showed you for England and Wales um, a moment ago. The other observation, he says, that actually in mayoral election years and in gubernatorial election years, you actually also get that the number of police officers goes up. So the kind of key question about unpacking the relationship between crime and police is what happens to crime um, in those years. And he shows actually that crime uh, goes down in those years. And so so then you can just unpack what the relationship would be, and actually what it does, it turns around uh, that positive relationship into a negative relationship. And if you run a regression uh, using the variation in the election years and uh, as as what econometric folk would call an instrument, using it as an instrumental variable on the grounds that it determines police, but it doesn't determine crime over and above its impact on police, you actually get a negative relationship. Um, so more police led to reduced violent crime in this kind of setting. Using this variation, based on the uh, based on the fact that in election years, uh, more money spent on police, you get more sworn police officers, and so therefore, uh, and you also see crime going down at the same time. Okay, so you use those marginal increases to identify the relationship between crime and police, and get something that's rather in line with what the what the economic model suggests, and counter to the idea that. Uh, if you don't try to take into account the direction of causality, uh, you're going to see a positive relationship. The okay. second area of evidence is, is a few papers that um, uh, try to think about exogenous variations in police as well. And uh, There's three papers I'm going to talk about a moment ago. One's one of mine. Uh, there's a newer literature that looks at what happens to police numbers induced by um, terror attacks. Uh, so what ha- the idea here is that when a terrorist attack occurs, we get loads more police put on the street. It was completely unexpected, uh, but it was going to happen. Uh, and so you see a sharp discontinuity in police deployment, uh, such that the police go- number of police goes up. And then the critical question is what happens to crime around that discontinuity when the police, uh, when, 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 when the police numbers go up. Uh, so, of course, this ensures that the causality runs from police to crime, because the... It was unexpected, but you get more police on the streets. The question is, what does that do to crime? Okay. Uh, so there's three papers that look at this. Uh, so there was uh, this paper by Deteller and Uh There was a terrorist attack on a synagogue in Buenos Aires. Uh, and what they look at is when the police were, a lot more police were put around the synagogue, uh, they look at what happened to vehicle crime before and after the attack, the further you move away from the from The synagogue. So they use this block level analysis of vehicle crime and they find a big reduction um, in vehicle crime nearer, before and after the attack nearer the synagogue where more police are. And the further you go away, such as not an increased police presence, uh, the, ve- the motor vehicles weren't there was, n- there, was no impact on motor vehicle theft. Um, this paper in the journal Law and Economics by Click and Tabarok uh, they used terror uh, levels in Washington. Uh, to see what happens. And it, and it turns out that the more police are put on the streets when the terror alert goes up, so if it goes from, I guess red alert is probably the highest, I mean orange, yellow, some, some ranking like that. And so you can see what happens to crime on the days when the terror alert is high, and they find crime is lower when the terror alert is higher as well. Uh, both those papers don't have any information on the police. Uh, my paper uh, with Draco and WIT here, uh, which is also in the American Economic Review, I haven't written it down, but it's also in the American Economic Review, um, looks what happened when, following the um, July 2005 um, terror attacks in London. Uh, uh, looks what happens to uh, police and crime there. So basically, the day after the terror attacks occurred on 7-7, uh, the number of police in, in London rose by about 35%. Straight up. It went, stayed up at 35% for six weeks, and then went back down again to be pre-terror um, attack levels. So we try to look what happened to crime um, at the same time. And it's really striking what happens to crime at the same time. I'm going to show you the numbers in a minute, but I can just tell you the story, it's pretty easy. Um, So um, as 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 the the number of police went up by 35% and stayed up for six weeks and then came down, uh, crime fell by about 11%, stayed down, and quite remarkably, as the police were taken off the streets, which would not be a particularly well-known thing, uh, the crime levels went back up to their uh, pre-attack levels as well. Um, So we back out a negative impact of police on crime um, from that. So this is how we do it. Um, so this just shows you there was a sharp discontinuity in police deployment the red line in, on the right hand side with the two red lines on the right hand side of, of a six week period uh, where police deployment went up massively in inner London the treatment group and didn't change at all in outer London, the control group uh, and the window over here is the same six weeks in the previous year uh, where you see no difference at all between um, between the um, treatment group and the control group. So it's very clear you've got this big, sharp discontinuity uh, over here. So as I say, police numbers went up by about 35%. So the empirical question is what happened to crime at that time, and crime came down by about 11%. So here is just some descriptive statistics which just show you that. Uh, This T equals 1 here is the treatment areas, the areas where the terror attacks took place in, in central London. Uh, T equals naught is the other areas of London where the terror attacks didn't take place and and police numbers didn't change. As you can see here, the police numbers, the police hours per thousand population, went up by 72 in inner London, uh, and and nothing basically had changed in outer London. Seven, it went up by two, and the difference between those is 70, uh, uh, which, if you do in growth terms, is a 35% increase in police numbers. If you then look at what happened to crime in the two areas, you see crime came down uh, by 0.44 of, uh, per 1,000 population in the inner London areas, and it didn't change at all in the outer London areas. So this came down by 11% here as well. So basically, you can figure out what... We, we then go and do lots of statistical analysis of this. Uh, uh, you can figure out basically what the elasticity is. It's minus in minus 0.11 divided by the 0.35. So the elasticity of crime with respect to police is about minus 0.3. It's very strongly determined in statistical terms because this was a very sharp change. Uh, and so you can see basically we did strong causal evidence for the number of police reduced crime. Uh, in a very, very specific setting, of course, it's not obvious how much you would, might want to extrapolate from this. Again, in the kind of lingo used by econometricians, uh, this research design has very, very strong internal validity. It shows in a setting that studied that, uh, that more police reduced crime probably doesn't have much external validity. You don't really want to be thinking about terrorist attacks as uh, generalising the way in which you might try to think about police deployment. So it's in a very specific setting. It's very local to that setting that you saw this happen. But it's in line with the model. There are actually big increases in police um, which reduce crime. So one other thing we did in the paper, which I haven't got on the slides, is we also broke the crime types down into crimes that you might think are more visible, uh, like street crimes... Um, thefts, uh, more, vis- more, more, more visible, more susceptible to police presence uh, as compared to burglaries, which mostly take place at night and, it, and you don't necessarily have people hanging around, uh, police hanging around near tube stations and so on uh, who might deter it. And actually all the effects of these visible crimes, there's no effect at all on these non-visible crimes um, as well. Okay. So this is an area where using, using modern big data... Uh, this uses administrative data from a metropolitan police service. Uh, uh, very detailed, very detailed, actually daily data, but we actually did most of the analysis at, week, at weekly level uh, uh, to look at these kind of, these kind of questions. Okay? So taking the, taking the kind of causality question seriously, you can find evidence, even when there's a very strong uh, relationship uh, in the data where the causation flows both ways. Okay? Um, So the second area of empirical evidence I want to talk about is not nowhere near as good in terms of uh, research design. How much is that? Fifteen. Fifteen, that's okay. Nowhere near as good in terms of research design as as that crime and police example I just said. Um, But the relationship between crime and the labour market. So in much of the early research in the area, people used to kind of collect data on crime in certain places and unemployment, the unemployment rate in certain places, and run regressions of one on the other. Um, and actually, uh, using that as a proxy for lack of... Le- using the unemployment rate as a proxy for lack of legal opportunities. Um, and actually, if you looked at what happened in that work, you didn't find much of a relationship between crime and unemployment at all. So Richard Freeman wrote the sort of definitive article at the time uh, in the handbook... The chapter in the handbook of Labour Economics on the Economics of Crime. And he said, if your prior was that the relationships were overwhelming, you were wrong. Uh, many studies don't find any relationship between crime and unemployment. Um, What's sort of interesting is more recent work has actually placed more focus on looking at low wages in certain places, certain areas over time. And actually finds much more evidence of significant associations between low wages rather than unemployment. So there's these three papers here uh, in different settings uh, which seem to find quite strong associations between uh, wages at the bottom end of a labour market and crime. So one example, is this is a chart taken from my paper on Engl- police force areas in England and Wales again. Uh, so the left-hand axis is the change in property crime, uh, the, the y-axis. The x-axis is the change in the 25th percentile wage. So the wages at the bottom end of the labour market, a quarter of away from the bottom um, in these areas. And you see this very strong downward-sloping relationship uh, between crime and wage. So where wages are higher, um, crime, is, crime is lower. Um, so, this, uh, this is also in line with what we would think about from the economic model, but actually, um, and it's true in these other studies as well, uh, but you see this negative relationship between crime and wages, but not much in terms of um, unemployment. Okay. I've got two more things I want to talk about. I have, I've only got 10 minutes now, probably, so I better move, move on a little bit. So, education is the individual characteristics I've chosen, chosen to look at here. Um, and so, education can impact on crime for a number of reasons. The reasons we put down in the model the income or earnings effect, uh, we know that people who 've got higher education levels earn more, so ceteris Powerbush, you would expect that should predict lower crime levels but there 's other reasons why you might think that crime could, could impact on uh, education could impact on crime as well um, so one thing, one thing might be actually that while you 're uh, actually in school uh, if you 're actually sitting in a classroom you 're not hanging around on street corners and so you 're incapacitated in some sense, and so you 're actually uh, not able to do crime. Uh, uh, I suppose you could do cybercrime these days, maybe, but um, uh, if you can get hands on a computer. But you, know, but, 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 you know, in a formal way about doing crime, uh, you can't do that. Um, and the second thing is sort of patience and risk aversion. This comes back a bit to a thrill of doing crime I referred to before. People argue that the educated have more patience in some ways, and so they're less likely to engage in most kind of risky activities um, as well. Um, of course, all of these, again, would be subject to establishing the direction of causation as well. You may well think that people who are more likely to do crime later on may well invest less in education because they think that's what they're going to do, in which case the relationship will go from, edu- from crime to education rather than move from education to crime. So again, you need to think about how you'd establish the causality um, in this question. It's no good just to go and get data and run a regression of crime and education levels. Okay, we need to think about un- unpacking the causality as well. So I have a paper that does this, and it looked at an education policy that took place in England and Wales in 1973 uh, when the uh, compulsory school-leaving age was raised from 15 to 16. Uh, So before 1973, you could leave leave school at age 15. Uh, If you're taking your exams in the 1972-73 school year, you had to stay on to age 16. So basically people were forced to stay on at school for an extra year. People who would have liked to have left school at age 15 were forced to stay on school for an extra year. Uh, So you might argue argue that gives us something in line with this uh, time time availability incapacitation effect. But actually people are in the classroom uh, for an extra year so they can't be doing crime while we're doing that. So it turns out we can use what's also a fairly modern method in econometrics. We can treat this as a regression discontinuity uh, to identify the impact, of the causal impact of education on crime. So, for people who are near that cohort, uh, birth cohort uh, that, that was 16 in 1973. Uh, so, it's people who are born. In, the thing is people who are born in 1957 and 1958, who would have turned 15 in 1973. You can actually think about if you're close to that cohort, you have a discontinuity potentially. Uh, and so, this is what happens if you treat that kind of discontinuity like that. So this shows you the proportion of these birth cohorts, people born between 1950 and 1965, like 15 years around the window when the policy change occurred, which is the vertical line. Uh, This shows you the proportion who uh, had left school with no educational qualifications. So prior to the school school age reform, it was about 30% uh, in England and Wales. So, about 30% of people had no educational qualifications when we left school. Uh, You can see a discrete jump uh, where it drops down by about 10 percentage points to to 20% after the reform occurred. So, basically, people's education levels improved. The other way of thinking about this, you might think of the age that people left school. Uh, Back in those days, a lot of people left school at age 15 or 16. Uh, It's not like these days um, when most people stay, the vast majority of people stay on. Uh, beyond the compulsory school living age. Uh, but you can see the average age before was about 16, and then it goes up to 16.4 uh, afterwards. So it goes up by about, about 0.4 of a year of education for people. So, of course, the critical question here is, this policy induced uh, education improvements? It was certainly not designed with crime reduction in mind. There was no intention to have crime reduction. as the as, 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 uh, If you look at the legislation, there's no mention of crime there at all. Um, So the question is, is is an unintended consequence of this policy but actually because people got more educated they did less crime? And the answer appears to be yes because there's a discontinuity in crime rates at exactly the same time period as well. These are very curvy because crime is cyclical across the business cycle but you can see from the the cohort just to the left uh, the crime rate is much higher than the cohort just to the right. So again you see a causal impact of crime on education here and again in that kind of way We can think about what the causal impact would be by thinking about the crime reduction, which is about minus minus 0.08 in terms of male convictions, and the improvement, which I said was about 0.4 of a year of education, and so that gives you the ratio of one to the other gives you a minus 0.3 relationship between crime and education. So again, we see a causal impact of crime and and on education, a causal impact of education on crime. As, as the model would suggest. The last part of a talk I want to talk about, which I've, I've got to do quite briefly, I think, is to talk about criminal earnings. Now, this is the place where we've got much less evidence, um, in part because it's a much, much more difficult thing to measure. Actually, measuring the returns to crime, the earnings returns to crime, or the monetary gains that people might get from engaging in criminal activities, not a very easy thing to do. So it is true that various self-report surveys tried to get a handle on this but that's asking people how much they earned from crime uh, and of course you might not probably think the reliability of that is particularly great. Okay. Um, so there's two sets of empirical studies that are more serious than that I think that I want to talk about here. There was this paper by um, Levitt and Venkatash uh, about a drug-selling gang uh, where they actually got data Uh, on a drug-selling gang. So it turns out the guy who was running the drug-selling gang kept these Excel spreadsheets of what he paid everybody who was working for the organisation, and they got access to those Excel spreadsheets um, that the guy used. Um, And then there's a paper I've got that's forthcoming soon where we look at crime, relationship with crime, and changing prices of goods. Uh, so if you steal stuff, you might think that how much you can sell it on for might be a good measure of what you're Maybe interested in. um, Nobody's ever done this before, which I was amazed by. Um, but we actually look at relationship between crime and prices of goods to see if changes in prices uh, of stuff uh, may have an impact on, on crime. So the classic example we, we sort of have in this is... Uh, so, you know, when, vid- when video recorders, VCRs were brand new things... Uh, people used to like to break into houses to steal them because they were worth a lot, but of course now they're worth next to nothing. So if people burglar a house, they don't go for the VCR because it's not worth anything. Uh, they're much more likely to try and go upstairs and find the jewellery uh, drawer uh, where the price of gold has been rising massively through time, and you can get a lot more for that. And so we're kind of interested if in prices of stuff change, uh, whether that has a relationship with criminal activity. Okay, so let me just talk about these very quickly. So Levitt and Venkatesh got accurate data on financial acta- activities of this um, uh, this drug-selling gang in in, in what they phrase uh, in, in in their paper as an inner-city neighbourhood in a large industrial. Uh, I think I thought it had northern actually, but maybe it doesn't. Large industrial American city. Uh, so Venkatesh was a PhD student in sociology at um, Chicago. And Levitt's a professor of economics at Chicago. So you might guess, perhaps, what the large industrial city is. But who knows? It might not be. Um, OK. Um, so what they do is they have these spreadsheets of this guy who ran uh, ran the, the drug-selling organisation, um, uh, who got caught, actually. Uh, and it says, actually, that they don't reveal his identity because um, he went to jail. And then he came out, and he's, he made a, he's been a highly successful person after coming out. Uh, in finance in the US uh, so I think he works in the New York Stock Exchange uh, but he got caught for this but, uh, but he was, but he kept, he kept oh, absolutely pristine records uh, of, of, of everybody who was involved in the gang so what you can do with this is you, you can actually look at um, what the compensation structure looks like for the gang uh, so I've written some stuff down here but this is the numbers you've got so basically they're observed in four years uh, doesn't actually, they don't actually say which four years they are but the wage data here uh, is expressed in 1995 prices. Uh, and so a benchmark you might think about is the federal minimum wage in the US was $4.25 an hour then. Um, so what they have here is, so you can see the gang leader's wage, the guy who was keeping the spreadsheet, uh, pretty, it's pretty high, uh, ranging somewhere, let say on the left, between $25, let's do it right, $32 and $97 an hour. So he was making quite a lot of money. The guys who are doing... Uh, uh, doing the very much more routine things. So, so the foot soldiers are the ones who take the drugs to people on street corners who then sell the drugs. So they just transport the drugs to the people who then go and sell them. We're being paid very low wage rates uh, for, for doing this job, uh, sometimes beneath the minimum wage, although you can see that by the time you get to year four of the data, they're above the minimum wage. The reason for that is uh, it turns out, uh, and this shows that these, these wages are really risky, it shows the wages go up a lot, Uh, because there was a turf war that took place uh, when there was gangs fighting. Uh, And you can see here what happened. Uh, The the wages went up quite a lot in year four. Uh, But it's perhaps not surprising when you look at what happened uh, in the periods of the gang war and the non-gang war. So here you can see that, you know, it's pretty risky uh, uh, in the period of the gang war. And so you might argue that, as we would think in economics, that perhaps people received a compensating differential for that risk. Uh, when the gang war took place okay. so this does show there's big returns for some people in the gang but perhaps the foot soldiers are not earning much more than the minimum wage uh, uh, there as well um, they, of course they may be doing other things uh, and so their total income might be higher um, it may be on welfare in which case their total earnings might be higher Okay. okay well, the last, last paper I want to talk about is we, we again use administrative data between, from a metropolitan police service here And we got big data uh, on actually what was stolen uh, for all thefts, robberies and burglaries uh, between January 2002 and 2012. So we can basically match the prices of goods to estimate crime price elasticities. So if you look at these data, even over this fairly short window of 10 years, uh, some crime types go up a lot and some crime types fall a lot uh, when when we've thought of them as products, uh, as do prices. And so the kind of question is, are they connected? And it turns out, yes, yes, they are. So, for example, here, the solid line on here shows you the monthly data uh, um, corresponding to the y-axis, which is the total number of all crimes. And this drops very rapidly over time. I mean, crime has been falling in London um, very rapidly, and so you see that. Uh, the other side, uh, the dotted line, the axis on the far right, um, shows a particular sort of crime, which is metal crimes. Uh, and so gold would be in that, silver, also copper and lead, aluminium, uh, and they actually go up very, very rapidly and cycle around, uh, but end up quite a lot higher than they started off. And we we picked that one because that's the extreme one about about what where you see where you see increases. This shows you the sorts of things that are in our data. So the things that are becoming going up in terms of crime are the top things at the top. Uh, so perhaps not surprisingly, mobile phones are at the top. Uh, also bikes, of course, bikes in London. There was loads of people riding around on really flashy bikes. Um, and so you can see actually they have a the second uh, biggest increase in terms of what was stolen. And as I said before, the audio recorders, uh, DVDs, CDs, uh, are the lowest, uh, are falling very, very rapidly and hardly anybody's stealing them by the end. OK, so anecdotally, you might think this is going to fit what we... Oh, the jewellery's all up here as well. Uh, watches, rings, bracelets, earrings. Um, as well. And the price of, gold actually went. price of gold actually went up from something like, I think it was something like $200 an ounce to $1,800 an ounce over this time. Nine-fold increase um, over this period that we look at. Um, so we're kind of interested in that. and So this is what happens when you look at the relationship I and mean, you, do, you do indeed see a positive relationship between uh, changes in prices and changes in crime. And this shows you where, where they all are. So here's the audio players, here's the jewellery up here. From two different data sources, one of which is our administrative data the second one, which is the British crime survey over there, which is when people report being victims of crime. Uh, and we've got, we've got similar cat- categories. We don't have all exactly the same categories, but we can line them up pretty well. And you can see they do very well over there. Um, we use using the consumer price index here, and so you might think perhaps the mobile phones and the computers might not be very good. Uh, when you go over here and look at the uh, actual phones and, that are being stolen, you can see they, they shift rightwards. Uh, so I think this is reflecting the... Falling prices in the in the in the um, in the data, whereas actually it's more upper end phones that are really being stolen. that you see over there, uh, uh, so you can see. So actually, when the iPhone came in, the iPhone, mobile phone thefts went up massively. Until Find My Oph- iPhone, Find My iPhone uh, was released, and then they come down massively as well because people can't get rid of them uh, as easily, or they can be traced more easily. Okay. Um, The last thing I want to talk about is metal crimes. And so this became a real big deal um, in in Britain towards the end of our sample period. It's true in other countries as well. Metal crimes have been big in the the US uh, and and in other countries. And so here's some examples, just taken from the newspapers uh, in 2012, our last year. Uh, So metal theft costs the Church of England £10 million. How does metal theft cost the Church of England £10 million? Because people go and steal the lead off a roof. Uh, and then sell it, and then when the uh, lead is stolen off the roof and the chur- churches go back to the insurance, make an insurance claim, their insurance premium go up. Uh, so the price of lead was going up rapidly. There was this amazing one about uh, metal thieves <laughs> dismantle a 10-tonne bridge. So they stole a whole bridge over a weekend that disappeared. Uh, and they've never, never, never been caught for that. There's various other things. Um, uh, the scrap metal act industry were told to clean up. But people take, This is where people take... The stuff when they steal it to scrap metal dealers, and if you stole some gold or something and took it to a or copper, copper is a better example. If you stole some copper pipes uh, and took them to a scrap metal dealer before the legislation, that was introduced in 2013, you had to sign a book, but you could just sign it Mickey Mouse and just walk out. Now these days you have to have a proof of address and an ID to show what you're what you're selling there as well. So they were told to do that. This one's a rather sad one here. Uh, Metal thieves was an animal hospital uh, somewhere in the Midlands, uh, where the thieves broke in and stole some aluminium cages. Apparently, the aluminium cages were worth about thirty thousand pounds. They valued at thirty thousand pounds, but they just chucked out or the injured animals. Uh, several of them died um, as they uh, as they stole this, which is a fairly sad one. Uh, so that's just some illustrations. Uh, oh yeah, an IRA and I have a Warrington bomb plaque for those of you who know anything about athletics. Years ago, Steve Ovett. Uh, was a famous 1500 metre runner. He had a statue in Brighton somewhere uh, where people sawed off a leg of Steve Lovett because it was made of bronze. So you can see these sorts of things. So why are they doing that? they are they doing that? Because the prices are going up massively. Uh, you can see here, so, so this shows you the prices of scrap metal and world, and world metal and scrap metal and world copper prices here that so they really, really track each other. Why are they going up? Uh, well, the world copper price is being driven up by demand from China uh, China's demanding copper from everywhere and pushing up the world price. This is when China's growth fell a bit and the world copper price went down, and then it resorted back up there as well. So you might be interested in what the relationship between these things and, and the prices are, and it's very, very strong. Here's two examples. This is 12 month changes. So this is the growth rate on the left hand side for metals, the right hand side for copper. And you get these really big price elasticities uh, 1.49 for metal and 1.8 for copper. Really, really elastic. Um, if you actually think about the change in copper prices, so you can see the way the copper just actually tracks the increase up and the increase down, and then goes back up again um, as well. So it seems that you know this seems like criminals are behaving in a fairly rational way. When the price of something goes up, especially when it goes up by a lot like this, uh, people will switch into these sorts of crimes, um, and, and because the value of a loot um, seems to be going up. One quite interesting thing here about this, though, is uh, so crime has been falling. Uh, and we have a calculation on what I'm going to say now in our paper. Uh, crime has been falling, but people are stealing more expensive stuff. So actually, if you think about the value of crime, um, it's actually not falling anywhere near as much as we count in the numbers of crime. Uh, the, the big crime falls we've seen also don't count. There's no, there's no numbers on cybercrime and online crime in them either. So it's probably true that crime is not falling anywhere near as much, actually, as the recorded numbers um, seem to suggest. Um, Okay, so I think I better finish. So it's just to summarise, so I've ho- I hope I've given you a kind of run through about where some of the new developments in the economics of crime have gone. So the economic crime stresses the economic model of crime stresses there's a trade off between legal and illegal, legitimate and illegitimate activities, and that in changing incentives and changing sanctions can play a role uh, in, in in influencing people who may be on the margins of crime uh, going one way or the other, depending on what happens to the incentives and the sanctions. And recent empirical research from four key areas seems to be in line with this way of thinking about crime. So, using kind of big data, using much more modern research designs uh, to try and unpack the direction of causality, you can see you can produce evidence that more, more police reduces crime. Economic incentives do matter, especially low wages seem to matter. Um, returns to crime is also evidence, but um, the fourth observation um, that. Uh, that changing incentives can matter for criminality. And also individual characteristics that can be influenced by policy can, be, can also be in term, important determinants of crime. So if the case of education is very clear. You can unpack a causal impact of education on crime using education policies as the means to unpack that causal relationship. Um, so as I say, I hope that's given a flavour of where we are. There's loads of quite exciting things going on in research on the economics of crime. Uh, so in, 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 com- in, in the years to come, I, in the next few years, I imagine we'll have a lot more about cybercrime, online crime uh, as well to talk about. Um, but that's kind of be the next step, I think, in where the research is going. Okay, so that's it.
0: okay Norek, uh, thank you very much Norek. Uh, i'd like to Norek, uh, see whether there's any questions uh, that you have Norek. Uh, and um, there are some of the microphones here Norek, so please knock, uh, you raise your hand if you've got a question and
2: um Hello, thank you for the presentation. I was just wondering uh, I'm actually studying this in the course on the development of uh, economics of development right now, and we're talking about corruption and yeah. we're using a very similar model, and I was just wondering to what extent can like a similar model explain corruption because you were talking about uh how violent crime uh is different from property theft and so on
1: yeah, it's a good point I mean. If I'd had longer to talk, I could have spoken about some, some aspects of economics of corruption. I mean, I think the, one of the issues with that, though, is it, it, you do need to move a little bit away from the Becker model because there's lots of other parties, in, there's lots of different parties involved in kind of corrupt activities uh, or potentially corrupt activities, you know. So, I don't know, in some advanced countries, political lobbying... Could, is sometimes linked in with that. And, 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 and so you might want to think about some of those network models that I alluded to a little bit about group behavior might, might, be, might be quite useful on that. I mean, I, mean, I mean, there's a lot of work on the mafia and about the corruption in, in, that, goes, that goes on in, in that kind of context. There's also stuff about corruption in... I don't know what context of development you were talking about, but there's, there's a lot of stuff about Latin, in Latin America where, you know, crime is the big issue. The day. So when people ask what the most important thing facing them, most important problem in their life is, they almost always say crime. You know, whereas here we say immigration for some reason, which is kind of different, but they always say crime in South America. And so corruption is a, is a big deal, especially the police, actually. Police corruption is a big deal there as well. So there's a huge literature out there um, on that stuff. In fact, a whole lecture could have been done on the economics of corruption, which wouldn't mention any of this stuff as well. Um, but obviously it's related. Yeah.
0: Any other question?
1: Could you speak for a minute on the empirical uh, results on the impacts of sentencing on crime rates? And specifically, is there an upper limit to how much of an impact sentencing can have? Um, I guess if you go all the way to the death penalty at that point, does sentencing still have much of an impact on crime rates? OK. There's a fair bit of work out, out there on, on sentencing, and there's was dif- was different dimensions to it. Um, so one, one, one area which is quite interesting, I think, is is when people use variations in judges. Uh, and so, you know, you can kind of think of about a tough judge and a lenient judge, or hanging judge and a you know, lenient judge or whatever. And, and, and so people do show that... Um, but being faced by different judges may have deterrent effects, that's one thing the, other, the work we did on the riots was, is, is, is quite interesting in that, but of course going right the way to a death penalty, it becomes very controversial and the trouble with a lot of that work is you know, there's so few people who the data's really, really weak to be able to say anything very significant because it doesn't happen very often uh, and executions don't happen very often uh, I mean the critical thing from the individual's perspective, having said that, would be how well informed they are on, on those on those kind of issues. So for regular property crimes, I don't know whether criminals know if, if they're gonna steal, I don't know whether they're gonna steal this, whether they know what the sentence they're gonna get for, for doing that is. I mean, they may have an idea, uh, but I don't know how, how, how much they know. So from a rational model, you would have to be fully informed about what the sentencing is. And indeed, you'd have to fig- be able to figure out what the monetary value of that would be when you weigh it up against the monetary, monetary returns. Um, there's a lot of stuff. I, I mean, there is work which is looked at um, when, sen- when, when mandatory sentencing guidelines have changed. And that does seem to suggest that if they get tougher, um, that, that crime comes down. So some people have compared what happens in, in some US states when you have that happening. So there's also there's this stuff in California, remember, three strikes uh, stuff as well. Uh, you know, And if you did three crimes, you could get sent to prison, even if it was just three, stealing three glasses of water or something. Um, and and so there's, there's work on that as well.
0: Somebody else? No. Well, I guess no. not like we can always. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I just had a question about that last uh, graph that you presented. Um, is did you say that the, the like the amount of crimes being committed dropped, but yet the actual the actual like amount? <coughs> that the, uh, that was stolen, or it, like, it's still the same? Like, can you um, re-explain that graph, if you don't mind?
1: The, the, the one about the metals? No, it was like the last one that you presented. Oh, the point I, the observation I made about falling crime? Yes. Yeah, so, so of course, so crime crime, crime drop. as with many big cities around the world, um, crime has been, measured crime has been falling, but it's typically a count of crimes, so that would be, you know, number per population. So the number of crimes is, is falling very rapidly. If you wanted to work out what the value of crime was, and if people are stealing more expensive stuff, then, of course, it won't fall as much because the value won't fall as much because and if it was ch- stealing cheaper stuff, it would fall even more. Um, and so it looks like if people switched to, to steal more expensive stuff, that's got more value associated with it, the crime drop wouldn't be as big as if you... If you um, if you just looked at the, the num- just the number of reported crimes, so we do a calculation in our paper actually, we, and, and we and we find that I think it's twenty three percent. So we find we find that crime would would have been would have been twenty three percent higher uh, if it's if if, if if you factor in factor in the values, it, it would have still fallen a lot because it's fallen by sixty percent since since the early, since mid nineties actually. Um, but but it wouldn't have. But if you factor in that more expensive stuffs being stolen, you, you would get that it's lesser before. Um, and, and the other the other observation was about unmeasured cri- crimes that don't appear unmeasured crimes in the aggregate statistics. Uh, so cybercrime has only just been in 2015 has only just featured in the uh, featured in the, in England and Wales crime statistics, uh, and it's quite sizable. Most most it's mostly under fraud, mostly computer crime. Under um,
2: on the same issue of crime falling but the value of crime rising, would it be accurate to say that um, if the crime is falling, then the probability of getting caught increases with that? If like, fewer people commit crime, the probability of being caught increases because it's like, more visible? And if so, uh, is there any like, point that we can uh, imagine that crime just like, falls below it and stops completely? Is it, would it be possible empirically to test somehow?
1: Yeah, theoretically, yeah, but not in practice, I don't think. I'm a, I'm a last bit. Um, I, mean, I mean, the difficult thing on the probabilities of being caught is, of course, we. So, the so the, be, the best measure we have about uh, about determines if that's really is numbers of police. Uh, we don't have very good evidence on. Whilst I've presented evidence showing that more police reduces crime in certain settings it's in very specific settings and we don't have much evidence at all on whether the in the aggregate more police reduces crime or not Um, and so we know over this time period, when i said that crime crime's been falling actually in the austerity years police forces have actually received a lot less money uh and so that goes kind of a wrong way for crime coming down because of police because they should actually be less effective if they're receiving less money um, so I, I, so I think it 's kind of difficult to answer that to, to answer that question in a satisfactory way from what we know from the evidence so far, even though it 's very important i don 't I don't think we can really answer it very well. Um, I mean you can write down a theoretical model where crime would go to zero because you raised the probability of being caught infinitesimally but i 'm not sure how useful that is in the real world for thinking about stuff. You can obviously give write down a theoretical model where that would happen. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, anybody else? No? That's I guess Last chance. I
1: guess <laughs> <laughs> no, I
0: guess we might just say, you know, like we can just uh, continue, you know, like any yeah. questions that you might have in a more informal setting, you know, like in the senior diamond room, which is on the fifth floor you know, of this building. So uh, I would like to, again, you know, like uh, thank, you know, like, uh, Steve, you know, like, for answers in a lovely public you know, like, seminar. Thank you very much.